Did you go to the Bahrain Pavilion? What do you, did you go? Did first of all, did you go? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. Did you go to the Bahrain one? Yeah, of course. That was a weird one, right? It depends which month you went. Okay. Because it changed every month. Really, I didn't know yeah. that. The one I did, they had like everything was like made out of aluminium sheets. Ooh, was that the one where it was the car as well that was there? There was no car when I went. Okay. It was just the inside was everything aluminium. Hey, but then what was the exhibit? Pearls. It was a pearl one. Okay. Yeah. So you went at the very beginning. Yeah. And e. Okay. And I, I was like, when I saw the aluminium, I was like, Alba, of course, of course, <laughs> of course. You know, it changed every, every month inside, uh, depending on kind of the theme. So you had the pearling. They then had like the automotive industry that was uh, highlighted, the mm. culture industry, the arts industry, business. So it changed. Uh, it changed quite frequently. Yeah. I mean, I, when I went there, it was so packed. And I remember just crowds and crowds of people. And uh, I would have been October. You would have gone October, yeah. November. Yeah, I don't remember the exact month. Yeah. I, I just remember walking past Japan's like thing. And it was just China. China and Japan were next to each other, which I thought was weird. <laughs> then it was next to the nice. US as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was a funny because I was there the first. I went for the first week. And it was interesting to see like the memes of the pavilions start to like go. Cause when I went mm. first day, Japan was empty. Mm. More people went to Japan. You start to hear like the whispers, oh, Japan is amazing. Japan is amazing. And then you start to see the line kind of get longer. Then you see like someone tweet about it, post on Instagram. And then by like the Those third fuckers. week, <laughs> you could see it kind of in real time get famous. I was, um, it was surprised me because in the US pavilion, they had a SpaceX rocket. Yes, they did. And not NASA, which I thought was was really telling. They yeah, did. Yeah. I wonder how that how that marketing how how that happened. Yeah. It was because the the pavilion was the um, Trump administration designed it. Really? Yeah, because it happened before. It was supposed to happen, obviously, the year before, mm. um, and it was Trump's uh, kind of admin and under their leadership that they designed it. So it was a Trump. Do you think decision. Trump is going to become back into power? It's looking unlikely how the court cases are going i mean it's difficult to say right if it's because i don't think biden is in for a second term i think he yeah. he fucked up too big I mean, it doesn't look like it's trump and also yeah, it was interesting even with brazil bolsonaro mm. lost mm. Uh, yesterday and i think that kind of politics is no longer winning it's, politics it's 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 hard because i think people are, are really really I mean, that's the dialogue that I'm hearing. I hear, I hear a lot of people being very upset with what happened with the Biden administration. Yeah. Um, I mean, the rhetoric I'm hearing right now, especially with Syria cutting, was it two million barrels a day with yeah. OPEC? That the U.S. have, have you know said like we're gonna look re reevaluate our relationship with Iran, which is like <laughs> such a telling thing. <laughs> and mashallah, MBS. Said, you know, we want to be, we want to have a European Union of the of, of the GCC, including yeah. Yemen, including Iran, yeah. uh, which is amazing. Yeah. And uh, it's it's and and now Saudi, I think they just said they're they're looking into joining the BRICS nations. So it would be the S, I guess. Yeah. So it's 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 a telling time. It's really really changing. It's fascinating. It's happening. This, uh, it's difficult to see Trump again in that in that kind of world in that dynamic. You think so? You don't think he can he can pull it out? I mean, you're you're more in tune with American uh, politics? politics than I am. So, like. I I mean, uh, if I would vote for anyone, I'd probably vote for Trump, mainly mainly because he brought peace to the Middle East, right? Well, I mean, what say what you want, but we had peace. <laughs> <laughs> do, 
depends what you define as peace, my friend. Depends on uh, uh, much peace, better than under Bush and Obama. What? Uh, that's not a big. Uh, that's not a high bar. <laughs> Come on, bar. you're being cruel. It's not a high bar. It's not a high bar. <laughs> I think. I think he he he, he managed to. Uh, what was it? I think the the first president who made who met with Sheikh uh, Khalid. Not Khalid. It was uh, was not Theodore Roosevelt. It was Roosevelt. In 1947, he met Malik Faisal. So that was the first time the U.S. and, and, and Saudi yeah. ever sat together. Yeah. That was in 1947. And that was, I mean, he, Roosevelt really, really believed in, in Saudi. Hmm. Um, he believed that Saudi could, could be uh, a pathway uh, for stabilization in the region. Hmm. And I think we we did good effort and did a good job, but I think the U.S. has a lot of time undermined yeah. <laughs> some of these things, right? So I don't know. I think I think Trump, if he would if he would run, he would probably win with a large margin. If I was a betting man, oh, I would, yeah? I, would so. I would bet on that. And do you think he'd be allowed to run? I think if he wouldn't be, there would be riots on the streets. Mm. I don't think there's there's I think it's there's so much it's like a pressure cooker and there's so much pressure right now in there. Mm. And especially, you know, this has never happened in US history that that a US, that a, that a former president was raided by the FBI. Yeah. This is unheard of, yeah. uncharted territory. Yeah. Right? And that's such an overreach from a government perspective. Is it? From a for a president? Given what he Supposedly, what yeah. the January sixth uh, uh, riots? I mean, between that and the, I mean, the documents that he had. The, but he's allowed uh, to keep it. He's a he's a president. He's well, a, that's that's their argument that he's not well, at least not in Mar-a-Lago. That's that's a debate on itself, right? Yeah. Because because as long as that that office or that residence is used for presidential work, yeah. or, or registered as such, he 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 has security clearance. You can't take that like. Away. That's yeah. that's for life, yeah. right? You should be on Trump's uh, legal team. Yeah. <laughs> Try to make the case for him. I think you know what I. I don't know. I. I, uh, I don't know. I don't think what what Biden has done for the region or what he's done policies has been good globally or or. Yeah. The extension of Obama's policies it wasn't great for the Middle East. I mean, l we can we can even look at like what's happening with the gas and oil prices in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. put the restrictions on, and and Europe is suffering for it, which is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. which which is you know, and they're looking at what other gas lines and in China and, and Germany have recently sat down and said, hey, we we want to see each other more as competitors hmm. rather than opponents. Hmm. That's also a very telling sign of Europe. Yeah. Are you thinking of going back to the U.S. on kind of election season? Well, just to like do a podcast and check out what's going on with those people down there? Or like, yeah, just to kind of be there and, I mean, the Arab community there as well and their views. and. Yeah, but I don't, I don't feel, I don't, I've never felt that the U.S. The US has been very friendly to the Arab community, hmm. right? I mean, my dad has been stuck at airports for like six, 12 hours. Mm. I've been personally stuck at airports, and that was when I was still a student. Yeah. Right. So when were you in the U.S.? Did you? Uh, in 2016 till about 2019. Okay, and I the was Trump, also the Trump era. Trump era. And I was yeah. also there before. Okay. Uh, during the post 
okay. which was a very. <laughs> yeah. My sister was living there at the time as well. In Whoa, New York. that was very difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I will never forget. And you it. grew up there then? You went to school in, in the States? Or? No, I, I studied in the UK mostly. Okay. Right. So uh, I got the accent from TV. Most people ask me about it, yeah. What about yourself? You studied in? Um, I mean, schooling in Bahrain and then university, yeah, UK and beyond. You went to St. Christopher, right? Yeah. And then you went to the UK? Yeah, I went to the UK. Um, and then you yeah, had a interesting kind of journey between then I did kind of different masters and programs in the US. Mm. Uh, yeah. And how did you find it living there from an Arab perspective? In the UK? In the UK and the US. I mean the US uh, was always more transient in and out. Um, best, uh, the UK I enjoyed it. I mm. really loved my time there. Um, it's comfortable, perhaps too comfortable, especially in London because you're surrounded with a Bahraini community as well. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed my time there. I, I got an apartment in London. That's how much I enjoyed London. Whereabouts um, in London? Angel. Hello. Yeah. My university was by there. Oh, Cass University, no? Exactly. Yeah, they changed that name, no didn't they? No name, the days. <laughs> no name, days. I got the new certificate that has days on it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, well, how do you feel about that? I was there a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Mm. It was interesting to see the universities changed, yeah. I mean, that's purely woke nonsense from my perspective. It's, I mean, I wasn't involved in like the conversation that happened. I think it was far, I mean, it's a far deeper conversation, I think, around CAS. Uh, because it's, I thought it was a good thing that they had a conversation around it. They, and it was important for their current constituents. And if it's important for their current constituents, then I think it's, it was a good thing for them to do. I don't think they could have progressed as a business school. Really? You without think so? That badly? Doing it. Like the kind of pressure that they were under, but also kind of the self acknowledgement around what is it that the university stands for? Um, does it stand for, in the modern age, something that's connected to the transatlantic slave trade? Or is it saying that actually that's not how business should be done, should not be done on extraction, should not be done on neocolonial lines? Um, and that kind of message to the current students was was very important. Um, that was something that was pushed by the CAS community, the professors, the lecturers, the, the students that were there, masters and undergrad. Um, and yeah, it's something I don't think they could have avoided. I was surprised that they avoided it for as long as they, they did, because it was a conversation that was kind of bubbling up. Um, but yeah, now when you go to CAS, there's, there's far more diversity um, very visibly, um, I think in the space, far more welcoming environment for different kinds of ideas that I thought, okay, like the Marxist party was very prominent and like their poster is like, this is really interesting for a business school um, to the racial equity kind of clubs and work. Um, and that kind of thing is important for human beings to feel. That's where me and you are definitely going to butt heads on this because I've always believed in a merit-based society rather than... Re <laughs> oh no, I, as well. But but if it's skewed in the other way, uh, very intentionally, it's not merit based. Well, I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, Princeton, Harvard. But merit based in what sense? No, but I, this is what I'm saying, right? Uh, Princeton, Harvard has have had years and years, maybe two decades worth oh, of like issues. Oh, like the diversity quota and like things like that. Exactly. I mean, they they. Oh, that's that's one thing. Yeah. And then another thing is, do you have the name of a professor as a business school representing the slave trade? 
is a very different kind of conversation. Hey, you know, history is history. <laughs> no, it, it is history, but it's important to acknowledge. It's important to acknowledge and not kind of put it under the sort of under the rug. Um, no. And then you can acknowledge it and then you have a decision to make as a community. But here, what do we represent kind of going forward? Here's the thing where I think right. we, we've, we, we both kind of clash on this because I was I was really shocked when I went to Russia yeah. and uh, the amount of sickle and hammer yeah. I saw on buildings, you yeah. know, and I was like, what? And I remember going to, I forgot the name of the museum in Moscow, but I went to the museum in Moscow and the front, like the moment you, you basically walk in, you see Stalin in this like beautiful like wedding like picture. Yeah. And you're like, whoa. And it kind of just like hits you really hard. And then, yes, he, he also did terrible things, but people also liked him at the same time. And yeah. that's my problem with Cass, right? You, you're, yeah. when, you, when you boil down the man as just being a slave trader, you're kind of yeah. losing the greater perspective of it, right? I mean, it's the same, uh, you know, like even St. Christopher's, you mm. know, had a conversation, I remember, in, it was, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know if you know what happened with St. Christopher's. Uh, they had their old logo. Okay. Um, and their old logo was, uh, it used to be a cross, um, a particular cross called the St. Christopher's Cross, mm. uh, St. Christopher's School. And it took a while for some of the Bahraini board members to then realize, actually, this was the same cross that was used in the Crusades against Muslims. Okay. And you can call it like pre, that was pre-woke times, but that was a conversation that happened as well. Like, okay, that's actually what St. Christopher's was built on its foundation of, as like St. Christopher's cross honoring that kind of patron saint, but it came with all this other kind of baggage. Yes, in part, there was reasons why they chose in good faith for the name St. Christopher's, the symbolism, the emblem, etc. But at the same time, you have a difficulty in a Muslim country uh, and with Bahrainis and Muslim students under an umbrella that is representing the Crusades and their very, uh, their very oppression destruction. Yeah, yeah. And, no, no, but then, it's, but then you have a choice. Do you continue with that? Or is it like, all right, Fine, till here, and then let's switch. Uh, let's switch our representation to be something that's more in tune with the times, uh, to be something that's actually more relevant, something that students feel comfortable with, that you feel is actually going to create a better learning environment um, and a learning environment that, uh, yeah, really breeds more diversity of thought. I bet you, if I go with you right now to St. Right. Christopher and we take ten students. And we ask them when the crusade happens and who are the Templars. Yeah. I don't think a lot of them will be like, oh, around the 14th century. <laughs> when did the Unless, first crusades happen? I think it was around the 14th century. But it's, but I think part of it was interesting at the time. And I was, I was very young when these conversations happened. Mm. And I think part of the point was they didn't teach about it. Uh, they did teach about the crusades. It came up in a history class. Mm. But the symbolism of what that actually meant uh, was not highlighted. Um, and I felt as a Bahraini. I, I mean, buddy, it's like 2,000 years ago, no, no. right? I mean, the first crusade. What no, no, but it, no, no, but I'm saying it's the, the cross, because the cross is still used today sure. as a symbolism. And Templars that, still exist today that, as well. That particular thing, but it's, is it an appropriate thing to have as a symbol of a school in Bahrain? Would you like? Sure, why not? But why? But I, like I believe that you make you make meaning of the symbol, right? 
Like the Nazi symbol, for example, was used in Buddhism. No one was making meaning out of the symbol. There was pretty much only one. Uh, there was pretty much only one meaning. Um, but what, for the me, Crusades and Templars—they're still no, hanging not, around. Not, <laughs> not, not, but it wasn't with the temp. But it was around the Crusades and the specific kinds of Crusades that had happened mm. uh, against Muslim communities. And for me, it was very interesting to see with Cass, like coming back to that. Sure. Both of my initial educational experiences were both rebranded for very similar kind of reasons mm. um and i don't have a problem with that for me i support it because it does create a better learning environment i actually felt when i was there in st chris a far better and more comfortable learning environment just having had that kind of acknowledgement having had that space and conversation as a student you're like huh i've never thought about that before i've never really considered this i've never really considered the meaning and the history um, it makes you a better critical thinker as well. And I don't think it's something St. Christopher's regrets at all for doing the decision. It's something in which I think is only right in this kind of society that we're in. It's more representative. And it gets away from you know, neocolonial thinking in different forms. And to have that as a kid, as a conversation to have happened, was great uh, to have. And I wasn't there, obviously, when they made the decision of Cass and Bayes. And I can imagine it would be the same for students, for students there. Um, but actually to have that kind of debate is a great thing uh, that they decided not, not just off a whim, but after very deep consultation with every one of their stakeholders, trustees, funders, board members, uh, students across the board, alumni, that that's the decision that, that they kind of made democratically together. Um, I think it's an important thing. Uh, to have knowledge, to do, do you not feel like you're you're you're? you're are we starting by there? Or are we? It doesn't matter, okay. does it? You right. get the edit, and you yeah. tell me anything you want removed. Right. But don't you feel that 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 in that kind of sensibility, mm. in that you're losing heritage and you're losing history, right? You can yeah. you can't define Saint Christopher as a Templar or, I, or from that perspective school, or you can say, hey, you know what, it did happen, and this is the historical effects of it. Well, I think I mean I think it's important to make a distinction because whether it was Saint Christopher's or Cass, these are emblems and symbols. They weren't built and they weren't operating on those values. Like there's a very big kind of difference between that. Uh, yani Cass in its teachings wasn't teaching you how to perpetuate neo-slavery and neo-colonialism. Like that wasn't- that I would definitely have signed up for that, that course. <laughs> <laughs> that was available. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna go to he Mars, right? So <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, I would hope you're joking, but I know you're kind of not. Like I know I if that module was there, 100%. like at this point, like I've known you for like half an hour. I think, actually, I think you'd sign up to that yeah, class just the, to see and just to be curious. I would be the top student. I would only show up for that class. But I, and there's a very big distinction between that, like on the representation, on the branding, mm. on the communication versus what the actual courses are, what your actual experiences in the school, what it kind of represents. Uh, for me, those are two very different things. But at the same time, you know, I studied in CAS uh, at a time when it was the financial crisis. <coughs> when okay, yeah. uh, my, my degree was investment and financial risk management. And it was very interesting for me to see that in the process of studying risk models, I would come to class where the teachers would tell us, all right, you know, this model was based on a particular understanding of the financial system, which 
you know, we've had this event happen in markets, which we predicted should only happen once every 100 years. It's happened every single day now for the last two weeks. It doesn't work. And you then start to get into a conversation around the system of capitalism, on the way that it's built, on the type of extractivism that was kind of happening around society, mm. how uh, the bankers bailout that was kind of being promoted at the time from uh, Obama and co. And you start to get into, okay, but actually where do these forms of modern-day extraction show up? Where do these forms of modern-day neoclosing show up? Where do these forms of where the system is really not working in the way that was intended, supposedly for the benefit of all? Um, and it's a very, very, very kind of small microcosm of a deeper kind of legacy of a system that was then built on the foundations of racism, of, okay. of patriarchy, of... Uh, and it's an important thing then for a business school to have acknowledged. I think it's also important not to completely put it under the rug and pretend it never existed and actually the roots of the university because I think there's a big learning around that. Um, I find with St. Christopher's, I would find it more enjoyable and I don't think this is what they do today, uh, actually to acknowledge the history of the emblem, the history of the logo, the history of actually that conversation because uh, it's a learning moment. It's a way of actually being able to get a sense of, yeah, this was what history was. This were the foundations. But actually, this is where we, um, yeah, we made a choice collectively to head into a kind of a different direction. I find that very interesting because this is very counter to, if you've known, if you know Thomas Sowell. No, I don't. Not uh, he's a student of, of Milton Freeman, uh, former, uh, well, a former communist, I would say, um, now very, very... I would say right leaning. Mm. He talks. He's black himself, and he talks about uh, 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 slavery and stuff like that. And he talks about repar reparation. Yep, reparations. And he 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 said this. He said that was so. What was fascinating to me is he said, the families of those who were slaves are are almost. They're done. They're gone. Yeah. Their grandparents weren't slaves. Uh, uh, maybe their great grandparents at this point. Mm. So who do you own reputation to, mm. right? And at what point do you say, that's the history? Hey, you know what? That's the cards you got dealt. It sucks. Mm. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. But you live today, and you're not your grand great grandparents or whatever timeline. Yep. And so that that's the kind of dialogue that that I would carry when it comes to, I don't know, the Templars, Nazi symbolism. Um, I don't know, Cass, uh, Princeton University. One of the professors uh, talked about this issue when they were changing the the whole names because some of them were yeah. were slave owners. Yeah. And the professor said, "I I'll find you the 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 speech he gave." He said, "Why don't we just change the name of Princeton then?" And the students were like, "Oh no, that's a going too far." Because people still want to have <laughs> the name Princeton on their yeah. title, right? <laughs> it's great to be woke and it's great to, to, to show to the world, hey, you know what? We yeah. care about our history and our past and blah, 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 until it affects the, the bottom line. <laughs> until it affects the bottom line. Inter internalized capitalism hits in. Yeah, right. I mean, it, in the end, it, yeah. no one wants to be graduated from a university called Timbuktu. Yeah. Which is a place. <laughs> Unless it's the fine graduates of Timbuktu University. Exactly. Which I'm sure is a reputable university. Exactly. Um, but see, I mean, I found it, I mean, in the specific case of CAS, it was overwhelmingly uh, students voted for, yes, it should change. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. um, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised because it's not necessarily a university that's known for its 
radical politics in any way, shape, or form, mm. but it does speak to the type of, I think the type of shift as well in the business world, it does speak to the type of mindset as well that's shifting on what is important, what is important to acknowledge, and what's the kind of vision that we'd like to have for the future, Sure. and what does, what should business also serve and stand for? Well, this, I mean, this is another thing that, uh, in my heart of hearts, I believe, you know, profit and maximization. That's mm -hmm. the goal for a business, sure. right? And your responsibility is to your shareholders, not to your stakeholders, mm. right? That's that's the way I've always looked at the business world. Okay. I don't believe in 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 ESG scores and okay. stuff like that. I, I think that a lot of that is 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 dangerous dialogue, um, and that the S and P five hundred now have taken on SSG, ESG scores to put into their their index fund is very <laughs> scary to me. Uh, do you want to speak more about that? Sure. Why do you, you want. feel why do you feel kind of a stakeholder approach is not why or what business should be doing versus a shareholder approach? I believe at the core business is that a business should reflect its own value rather than being part of or trying to change the value of society. Hmm. In the sense like Nike should focus on making shoes. Okay. It should not have a, a policy engagement of, 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 of what's happening with football players taking the knee. Okay. That's not the responsibility of companies. Okay. Right? And I, I think once you cross that line, once corporations start having their hands into what's politically motivated, mm. you wind up in a very dangerous world. Interesting. You know, where, 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 I, I, where, where even like right now, the way how content is fed at a population is, is through marketeers. Mm. Because markets and practices set the standards of what kind of content is approvable for them to market to, mm. like YouTube, for example, right? Mm. And so if your content isn't mm. very approval friendly from a marketing from the marketing agencies, mm. YouTube doesn't want to host your content. Okay. Do you get kind of what I mean? So you end up in that very dangerous world where where you have the system set up in order to encourage what's the best items to sell to you, mm. right? And that's why I think you, you find this dialogue in the US less than what 5% is, is or are gay in the US, less than 0.5% are trans, transsexual. Yet we talk about these issues <laughs> like they're like they're the, the like 50% of the population is, is, is trans or gay. Yeah. But do you think that's because of marketing share, shareholder capitalism or stakeholder capitalism? I think it's purely stakeholder capitalism. I think we, we've put so much effort and refinement into what the stakeholders want mm. rather than, hey, you know what? We're worried about profits at the end of the day mm. and we should focus on that mm. and start and stop trying to manipulate the public. That's the scary thing to me. So what Go does ahead. what does responsible business look like for you under a shareholder approach that you're operating within the law? OK, right. That's okay. Uh, that's I think it's as clear cut as that. And okay. the moment you try to to circumvent the law, or you try to do any kind of coercion or collusion. Oh, collusion is above board. Coercion is above under un, underhanded. I think anything that's coverted, like you should get really hit hard. Okay. And when that law also pertains to social issues or environmental issues, hmm. where does that kind of fit in in that framework? Well, that's really interesting. I see it as this, right? I, I've, I'm very much a believer in, in Milton Friedman's version of capitalism, mm. not cronyism, what we're kind of experiencing at the moment. I think 
corporations have been able to influence public policy to an unprecedented degree, mm. especially if you're looking in the U.S. Mm. And uh, I mean, there's there's whole businesses now set up in 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 being able to manipulate <laughs> presidents, uh, bureaucrats, mm. ministers, mm. Uh, um, uh, governors, mm. mayors. That's a that's that that exists as a business yeah. is terrifying to me. Yeah, like that lobbying is yeah, it's legal. Legal, yeah. That's I mean that's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, so that's where I see where, where issues in line. And Milton Friedman always would say, you know, you, you market freedom until the effect that your 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 inherent business practices is damaging things you don't own. Mm -hmm. For example, if you're a company that's producing, let's call it a soft drink like Coca Cola. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you. So we have better, best audio possible. Yeah. Thank you. So if you're like Coca-Cola, I believe if you own the land of, let's say, a riverbed or river, you can pollute that river as long as it's your section of land. Okay. The moment that river flows down into property that you don't own. Which is how rivers work. Right. You should be slapped as hard as possible. Okay. I think that that is as fair as it gets. Okay. Where do you see it on that end? Uh, definitely not a shareholder capitalist, <laughs> I have to say. You don't far, say. <laughs> far from the shareholder and far from the capitalism uh, <laughs> on both fronts. Um, I mean, I think one, I think Friedman has been proved wrong already. What? Um, I Go mean, on. I think the stakeholder approach, at, at the very minimum, we do require a stakeholder approach because I think a stakeholder approach is far more scientific it is a better measure as well of how a business is actually able to function and runs a business is not a single entity it's not a microcosm just separate and isolated from everything else mm. uh, as you said even if it comes to the river the river is connected to everything in the seas and the oceans it's connected to the fish it's connected to uh, the communities that are kind of sustained uh, around it um, and no business operates inside a business operates within the context of its community a business operates in the context of its ecosystem, its ecosystem services. A business operates in the context of its laws and regulations. Um, and yes, there's a river you need to consider, and there's rivers of people and laws and services, mm -hmm. environmentally and otherwise, that need to be considered, um, that actually enable a business to operate in the first place. And it also goes then to what's the point of a business? Uh, for me, it's not just profit maximization. Uh, purpose of the business at its core should be the betterment of, you would hope, society at its best, mm -hmm. or at its worst, doesn't harm mm -hmm. society. And you do need to then consider what are the social components, because you have people working there uh, at a business. You have people who are across the supply chain um, from whether it's transportation or whether it's something that's intense for minerals uh, that are involved in that process. You have species that are, of course, affected depending on the business that you're in. And you have a, var a far larger view of what the economy actually is, uh, which isn't this kind of separate, isolated business. Um, you, know, you still need to use the roads if you're going to be transporting something that's paid by government or public services or tax or otherwise. You still need to be using logistics and public infrastructure. So it, it's not something that's actually feasible to say that a business kind of exists in its silo. And then it's also what does a business serve for in that wider ecosystem? Um, 
it's where the concept of, I think, stakeholder capitalism really has been gaining more momentum of, yeah, how do we serve our wider stakeholders? And that's not just a single shareholder. And actually, a business is far more innovative, uh, far more inclusive, and far serves its own purpose uh, uh, as a result. And it also goes into a little bit of what you said around where are also the limits as well to it. Uh, where should there be uh, certain limits to, to growth, to extraction, to expansion? Um, and where is it that a business should not be growing beyond the means of how it can actually control its, uh, its impacts uh, as well? It, it's interesting that you, you bring that up. I, again, I think we, 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 we have different viewpoints on, on certain key, key items here. I, I believe the, the least amount of regulations on both the hiring and firing process, on, the, on running the business, the, the more organically business can institute. The closer you can get the business world to nature yeah. and the survival of the fittest or the survival of the, of the one that's able to adapt the best, okay. the better it is for the business, the more resistant that business is okay. in the market, right? Okay. I think when you start introducing uh, ESG quotas and stuff like that, you're creating a lot of bloat in a corporation. Yeah. I think you're you're you are then tied in a weird way where you have like Ford that's been what they they had bankruptcy they claimed bankruptcy four times mm. or three times. Mm. GM, I think also they had to get a government bailout three times. Mm. Right? I think those. Hey, you know you fucked up. You need to die. Sorry. Mm. Time to make space for the new. Mm. Right? And I I, I think that's that's what it comes down to. Bad ideas need to perish and good ideas need to survive. And the market needs to decide. I think the more there's regulation from the government end and saying, hey, you know what, we need to do the X, Y, or Z, hmm. the more counter it is. Thomas Wall um, makes a really interesting statement and he talks about uh, minimum income or minimum wage. And he said how, how that destroyed millions of people hmm that were able to, to, to earn a few bucks here and there hmm. by doing odd jobs, hmm. that suddenly the business wouldn't be able to hire because you have to have now a minimum salary, I think, of $13. Okay. Right? And then as now, which, which is the most diabolical and smartest thing Amazon has ever done, was, was increasing minimum wage from 13 to 16, right? Hmm. Pushing it on that dialogue, presenting themselves as being this, you know, uh, angelic business, humanitarian business, we yeah. care, yeah. and then trying to lobby to increase the minimum wage because they know all these smaller shops, all these mom and pop stores, all these smaller enterprises, SMEs, yeah. are not able to afford it. Yeah. They're, they're already struggling on their balance sheet. Yeah. And so they just got rid of a ton of competitors. Yeah. And that's creating barriers of entry right there. It's I genius. And they're the archetypical shareholder approach to capitalism. Yeah, but that's, yeah. that's my problem is that's not capitalism, that's cronyism. Because they're only is, able to do that because which, they have influences on local which, politicians. Which is what the system leads to inevitably. And it is that kind so. of it is that kind of race to the bottom. And one thing I will agree with sure. you in, but a different slant to it. Sure. You mentioned something really interesting, which was business should be as close to, to nature and kind of nature's principles. Mm. So I I did a um, essentially a master's in a field called biomimicry. Yes, you did. I um, remember. And biomimicry is the science of studying nature's models, rules, systems, processes, and looking to emulate that in the form of products, services, organizations. So essentially, what does it actually mean for business to be close to nature? 
and actually find a very different story because the story of, of Darwin and his theory wasn't about survival of the fittest. Often it's misunderstood. Actually, what we find in the natural world is that the species and ecosystems that time and time thrive and survive are the ones that are far more cooperative. Competition is good in very small forms. Um, it helps different species, of course, mm. in, in surviving on very kind of short time scales, but actually across the long span of history and in geological and biological time, we know I'm seeing time and time again, it's the most collaborative, it's the most integrated, the ones that have a stakeholder approach mm -hmm. uh, to their ecosystems, um, actually create conditions that are conducive for that kind of cooperation are the ecosystems that thrive and, and survive the best. They're the most innovative, they're the ones that have been able to uh, figure out how to adapt to many different climactic changes, to uh, species invasions, and I think that, at its core, is also what we should be getting business towards. I, I don't remember reading that in Origins of Species by <laughs> Darwin. <laughs> yeah, but but that's but that's what the that's what the theory is. Um, origin of species? No, 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 no. I'm saying, but Darwin sure is far beyond the origin of species. Okay. Darwin's work expands far. He wrote about competition and survival, yes, yes. but actually he wrote far more about collaboration. He wrote far more about commensalism and mutualism. Uh, I've only read Origin of Species yeah. from his work. I haven't and I think that's, his extended And work I think that's culture. one of the interesting things about his, his work, which is often kind of misunderstood. Because actually we see, mm -hmm. uh, in real time and practice, yes, the species and ecosystems that are more collaborative are more biodiverse, uh, that they're healthier ecosystems. And it's also ones in which when humans participate in natural ecosystems as well, uh, actually those ecosystems are better for it uh, when we're doing it in the right way. Um, Do you not feel that, he, that we have this hum humanization almost of nature approach? We have this weird kind of like mental image yeah. in that nature is somehow kind and, and goddess-like. You know, the, out of out of four, 40,000 mushrooms, only 300 or so are edible. Yeah. Uh, out of the 100, uh, from 100% of vegetation, only about 1.5% of vegetation is humanly edible. Yeah. Uh, there is no such thing as an animal that dies from old age. Yeah. Generally, they die from sickness or yeah. they're hunted. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, uh, I, I see now more than ever people trying to hug bears, which is to me... Not a smart thing to do. So moronic. It is so crazy. That's the part of Darwin's uh, theories and actions. There you go. Absolutely. It's called the Darwin Award, right? So I, I, I feel like it's, that's... No, no. I mean, it's a really great point that you make in terms of how we view nature. Um, because first of all, it's, it's strange to talk about nature as a thing when, of course, we are. We're part of it. We are part of it. I agree with we you. We are totally. nature. We're connected. Um, and sometimes the human language tends to separate as well. Um, the shelter approach to capitalism has been built around the separation of nature. It has been built okay. around trying to separate nature from us. Um, and it's then easier to exploit the rest of nature. Um, Interesting. Okay. Because we're not a part of it. Nature doesn't have feelings, emotions. Nature is this kind of robotic thing. Um, and from the roots of capitalism, we're built on that kind of construct. And when you have that kind of separation, when you do think of not as even stakeholders, not just as human stakeholders, but also as the more than human world, it's far easier to then exploit and oppress and extract. 
Now, to the point of then, yes, we can consider nature more, more as us and we are nature, but it, you, I absolutely agree with you, we should also not romanticize what the natural world is. But um, we shouldn't put our human kind of ideas and emotions on other species, on other ecosystems. So when we see that nature does work collaboratively, yes, we can see that, and it does that in its own, its own particular way. And it does symbiotically, that, yes. It does that symbiotically, it does that mutualistically, it does that commensally. There's many different forms and relationships of cooperation within the natural world. Um, as a whole, it's a fine balance, uh, but we can start to look at sort of the micro nuances of the relationships. And we are better off, I think, as a society, also as business, when we actually start to study the mangrove forest that's kind of next door here, mm -hmm. uh, actually understand what is the mangrove forest really doing? What are its principles? What are its systems? How is it actually able to have survived in this kind of environment for so long? What is it doing? And what does it actually mean for us as communities and businesses to be operating in a way where we are not the top of the food chain, so to speak, imposing what human society should be in is on the natural world. But what does it actually mean to shift our perspective to say, how do we actually participate in this ecosystem that we're part of? Uh, how can we actually contribute to it? And the stakeholder approach, a more inclusive approach, is one small entry point to it. Now, that's very separate to ESG, which mm -hmm. is a whole different topic, I mm -hmm. think, in and of itself um, as well. And where the question of how is it that business should be functioning in a way that it actually gets to those standards. Um, and at the moment, it is a minefield. Uh, at the moment, there isn't a lot of best case, absolute best case practices when it comes to regulation, uh, I think, around that. But we're definitely on the journey towards it. I, I hear where you're, where, where you're coming from. And I agree with a lot of the points that you're, that you're saying, especially when Especially when you when you talk about corporate corporation uh, corporate oh, I can't say the word corporations no co cooperation cooperation, cooperation. thank you uh, there there needs to be that for merchants to do their job mm -hmm. when it comes to a, a, a larger state level yeah. in the end of the day if if we look at you know apples being if we compare apples and apples and pears and pears mm -hmm. there's a reason why China's growth is double digits mm -hmm. right and it's because although their government is communistic. The market is capitalistic. Yeah. And that's the reason why we're seeing a slowdown in the US. And when we're talking about negative externalities, which is you know companies that pollute or, or produce uh, nasty byproducts and stuff mm -hmm. like that, there are negative externalities that aren't being taken that aren't being taken account of. Exactly. Right? And that we can agree with. Yeah. Because you know, if you're I don't know, if you're uh, a factory that's dumping uh, uh, sodium and and uh, nitrogen and um, um, I forgot which the acid one chemical uh, up into the air and it's cr and it's creating acidic rain in Australia. Mm -hmm. You're not being taxed for it. Yeah. Right. And so there there is that dichotomy mm -hmm. of it. Right. So these negative externalities are hidden usually on the public side, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't know how to fix it. I wouldn't know how you would charge a company yep. that kind of a damage. Yeah. I I think there there needs to be as. I, I, in the fundamental belief on my end is that any government intervention is any it will create a market failure. In the UK, um, public photography is or videography is perfectly fine, mm -hmm. uh, and you can film and do and pictures of anything you like. Mm -hmm. 
um, as and there's this weird like there's this weird asterisk when it comes to the law, where where if you for example I don't know let's say I find out where you live yeah. right let's say I'm a stalker yeah I can take pictures from you entering exit your house until it's excessive mm. isn't that fascinating mm. and what the rule of excessive is is open mm. to interpretation. Mm. So I could be outside, like on a street corner with a camera for three days. Okay. And that could still be okay, but maybe on the fourth day. Fourth day is a bit excessive. It's excessive. Interesting. Interesting how that law works, right? Hmm. However, if I'm using it for, for monetary gain, so hmm. for example, if I'm a detective and I'm taking pictures of you for whatever reason, yeah. right? Then I have to get, I, I would, I would, I would, I would either have to get permission from you hmm. or I would have to blur out your face before I can give it to my client okay. because it, it's become now a commercial commercialized product. Isn't that interesting? All that, all that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but you're also talking about what are kind of the, where is it that there's a good regulation that is protecting society? Uh, where do you actually need more of that? And where we should be letting go of structures and bureaucracies that are not actually serving for yeah, do you not, do you not feel like others. the best approach is just small governments? Small governments? Yeah, as in like like let market decide, only intervene when it's near catastrophe, and that's it. It's a fine theory. Uh, however, <laughs> you don't like it, huh? <laughs> we're at such a stage in our uh, in our epoch of human civilization. Yeah. Where I don't think we're there yet. I think we. I think what is true, we do need more we need more functional local governments, so more functional municipalities, more functional towns, more functional cities, and I think definitely in that form. Um, I also think we're at a stage where ecologically, politically, and economically, we require such a huge shift in transition mm -hmm. that, and I'd say particularly in the global north, uh, it is hard to see it happening on a small, purely just only a small government scale, I'd say it's yes and. Do you not feel, uh, in your heart of hearts, mm. if Bahrain would would take away a lot of the overheads, a lot of the bureaucracy, yeah. and then just be like I don't know, um, Singapore of the seventies, mm. right, where yeah. it was this hub yeah. of just trading, merchants selling and buying. Yeah. Do you not feel like Bahrain's entire living standard for the population would skyrocket upwards like it did? Yeah. I think it depends how it's done. Um, you know, the rules that you just kind of mentioned around like one specific industry, I can sure. tell you many that, you know, different industry uh, folks would say, okay, there's actually no reason for it. It's too prohibitive and actually it's not in line with the times. And I think all of that, yes, would be a much easier like, environment. But there's another... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. I've yeah. never heard of a corporation ever in the history who've ever said, hey, you know what? We need regulation. <laughs> Unless it's well, to the benefit for them. <laughs> well, but, but also as a company, we also know there's some regulation that is essential and important that does need to be put in place because you also can't have, you know, a race to the bottom indeed when it comes to pollution, when it comes to, you know, like polluting the river. Negative said, externalities. The same thing and all those negative externalities, they do need to be costed. They do need to be in some way, shape, or form taxed as well. Um, those are the kinds of regulations that I would certainly welcome more of that creates action ecosystem and a framework for, for me, a better kind of innovation. An innovation that's saying, okay, that's actually more sustainable, that it's being done of innovation in ecological limits, innovation that's actually 
serving the well-being of our society and of our communities, innovation that uh, is actually able to be you know, sustainable across decades and generations and not something that you know, is going to be maybe profitable for five, six, seven years, but is no way, shape, or form going to be sustainable environmentally, economically, ecologically, societally speaking. Um, I think there are certain kinds of regulations which are helpful and useful. And at the same time, when we start to look at uh, investment uh, as well and how that's done and who can invest and where they can invest in a way that protects you know, the country's sovereignty and, and its long-term economic stability, um, especially. Let uh, me interrupt you on there because how, okay, let's, let's go this as a thought experiment. How would, you, how would you tell the company who owns the river for let's say that section, I do believe, I, I do agree with you that their ability to pollute that land should only reach that land ownership, yeah. right? And as soon as that passes through that whatever imaginary line yeah. where they stop owning it, they should be somehow fined or punished or whatever else. Yeah. How do you motivate companies to be more in line with the environment from, from yeah. what you're saying? Do you punish or do you reward? There's, I mean, there's a lot of different theories and it really depends on the particular type of ecology, community, kind of economy that you're in. Uh, one theory goes, no company should own the river in the first place. Okay. Uh, you shouldn't own uh, that kind of natural asset, so to speak. Um, it's something that should always remain public and in the commons. And actually, when it's in the commons, it's uh, far easier to manage, to regulate kind of around. Because as a company, you're not owning it. You are uh, using its services and ecological mm -hmm. services. Um, and you and others have a duty to basically take care of the public commons when you're using it. In other cases, when it is uh, privatized, uh, which is I think, far more damaging often, um, then sometimes it's in the form of taxation. Mm -hmm. In other cases, when it's far more, far more of an extreme pollution that has happened, you have communities depending for reparations, as you said kind of earlier, as a way to, to do that. Um, and there's different countries also trying to do things on scale around nature's rights and actually enshrining nature's rights into their constitutions. You know, you have, you know, I'll use the case of a river mm. where in New Zealand, there's rights that are actually given to a river. Um, what that meant in kind of practice was the community that was living across the river was given reparations for the damage that was done to their community. Um, they were given a uh, democratic say as well on when a company wanted to use it on the how and the what and the why and the products and services. Uh, that and just it opens was, the door to bribery. Sorry? That just opens the no, door no, to but bribery. No, no, but, but it's all kind of regulated in a, in a way where you have indigenous communities in that case who care about the ecosystem and the land. There is a breeding ecological principles of what is considered healthy. Um, it also goes to the point around, you know, we have this conversation off camera around uh, sort of food and food sustainability as well on, you know, how do you then protect the fish stocks? How do you ensure that those are still healthy? Um, and there's different frameworks around that, depending on the location, the locale for how that's, how that's done. I think in, in the context of Bahrain, I think what's more interesting is it's when there's a danger if we start to privatize everything. Um, in a form that's based on debt-based finance. I think mm -hmm. that's where regulation is important to protect the country. Um, you know, Bahrain is a small island developing state. Uh, we all know we, we have a lot of debt as a country, mm. um, but that's something that's a very common story for many small island developing states um, that are kind of in this cycle of 
uh, exacerbated climate impacts, uh, deteriorating biodiversity, and increased death. And we have a situation where Swala and developing states between 2016 and 2022, we had uh, collectively $1.5 billion given in climate finance, mm -hmm. uh, collectively to, mm -hmm. to small islands. So that's $1.5 billion going to supporting adaptation across sea level rise, uh, supporting ecosystems, supporting adaptation and building of infrastructure, so better, uh, better public transportation, green buildings, uh, uh, supporting kind of heat stress methods, uh, helping as well with agriculture um, and food sustainability and otherwise. And then you had those same small islands pay out, uh, I think it was over 22 billion in the same period uh, to external creditors. I love it and you have such an imbalance and injustice. And then what kind of happens with private capital when it goes into those small islands where there isn't regulation um, is it's almost that kind of race to the bottom. You have, okay, we actually need to adapt then to climate change. We actually need to upgrade our urban infrastructure. We need to um, really be more resilient in our agriculture and really find you know, aquaponics, hydroponics, different ways of, of growing our food sustainably. We need to um, be building a public transport, but then all of that is required as well because of the changing environment that we're in, um, because of more extreme heat stress uh, that is not uh, small island's fault. Okay. And that private capital then comes in in the form of we need to take out either more debt in the forms of bonds and others, or private capital comes in and basically takes, uh, takes advantage of that kind of situation. Um, and it's a very, it's a very kind of tricky road because then the, the river is privatized along with every single natural asset that you have. And in that situation, it is very difficult to plan for a country's sustainability in the long run. Um, if you can pollute without regulation and not only just pollute without regulation, if you can start to extract and own uh, without consideration for maybe the longer-term planning of that country. Um, and that's more important in smaller islands and smaller countries. You know, you have in the U.S. a little bit sort of grander space where uh, in some cases it's, it's not sort of so felt, but yeah, definitely in the context of Bahrain and small islands, it's something that is that kind of regulation for the protection of our country, our sovereignty, for the long-term planning and ability of, of Bahrain to actually think in the future and to plan across the future across visions is, is essential. Um, and yeah, those, those kinds of regulations are very, very welcome. I, I, I agree with a, lo a lot what you're saying. I think there, there needs to be a, a, a re, what's the right word? I think there needs to be a ground up restructuring on a lot of things. Yeah. And there needs to be a lot of time that needs to be taken and step back and being like, hey, you know what? These things are working, these things aren't. Yeah and really, really focus on it. And I, I think there's some key issues here that need to be readjusted for and how the future is heading uh, for Bahrain to be like, hey, you know what, uh, 200,000 200, Saudis are gonna come every weekend mm -hmm. uh, and, and spend on the economy isn't something that you can build on forever and hope that it continues forever. Because yeah. once COVID hits again, yeah. or something similar to, to yeah. that degree, where Saudi is not able to travel for three years, you have people really suffering. 
all those coffee shops, all those shisha shops, all the dry cleaning businesses mm -hmm. where you don't think of, right? That are externality owned exactly. by the hotels. Uh, they were they were in real pain. Yeah. But let's take a break. Do you want a coffee? I'm good. I still have my. Uh, I but why do you think people may not be so happy with it? Like, what are like just just kind of think around why? You think I think it's just people, you know, who who want to take the shortcut. That's okay. what I think it is. Okay. I think there's 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 the there is this weird thing, and I don't know if we're we're both on the same page on this. Hmm. That gratitude has become such a key focus in people's lives hmm. that they don't understand it's it's greed that brought you to where you are your parents are greedy for a better life hmm. they wanted to ha they were greedy to have you have a better life hmm. right it's that aspect of greed that that wanting to be better that having a better life, uh, quality of life having a nicer hmm. car living a better lifestyle eating better food that that was that's what allowed us that innovation and hmm. the moment you're kind of like like take that foot off the pedal and you're like Oh, you know what? I'm happy living in a one-bedroom flat. That's 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 when it gets dangerous. Why does it get dangerous? Because you is is if you're looking at if you're looking at someone who's worse off than you and saying, well, at least I'm not that. Mm. You're you're not defining yourself by the very best. Mm. You're defining yourself than the worst. Because how far down that's that try that that mm. hierarchy do you have to go and be like, oh, at least I'm not a drug addict. At least I'm not a thief. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very deep, it's very quick to, to fall down that staircase. Oh, so much to unpack there. So <laughs> you don't think to, so? So much to unpack there. Oh God, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> but let me start here. All right, let's go for it. <laughs> well, I mean, one, obviously in, in the system, depending how you define the system. So sure. even like the global system that we're in, uh, we, we are in a system that we cannot sustain. Uh, this kind of system, whilst it may have gotten us to a certain point, can't take us to probably where we would hope to go, which is a flourishing society, uh, which is a prosperous society, which is a society that's designed around human well-being and more than human well-being, uh, in which communities are able to uh, achieve uh, a high level of, of life satisfaction of, uh, of prosperity in different forms. Our current system of greed. <laughs> so, well, I'll get I'll get there um, because in a greed-based system, we're not able to have that for a large amount of people. You don't think um, so? I think we have biophysical limits to what that is. Um, I think there are certain limits to to growth in this current system. This current system that we have now, uh, one is very unequal. So, you know, I come from the climate change world and I can kind of look at, okay, actually, yes, there is kind of a greed that's, that's there that has been built off those societies, of course, of extractism. And we have a society where, you know, 92% of all global emissions are from the global north. So that's uh, sure. US, Europe, and kind of Australia, kind of in that. And then 8% is global south, okay. uh, is responsible for 8% of emissions beyond what we'd call kind of planetary boundaries, beyond uh, what actually is your fair share. Mm -hmm. So that's 8% of emissions from MENA, from Africa, from Latin America, Asia combined. Sure. It's a huge, huge, huge disparity. Now, if we all try to do the American life, uh, of course, we're not going to uh, be able to survive on on this planet. Uh, 
Mm. Um, we just don't have enough rocks, materials, minerals, uh, the technologies, the space kind of for that. And it's also a question of what part of that life doesn't actually serve for human well-being. Um, I know food systems is very important for you. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, when we start to look at the the unsustainability of global global agriculture and how that's done, it's not a case of we want to expand that uh, as a whole. We need to completely redesign that system in itself. Uh, we live in a system where we our, our climate, our atmosphere, our biodiversity is just not able to sustain it. Um, and we're not able to sustain the amount of exploitation as well that's kind of built around that, of, of harnessing those systems. It's a system that won't take us uh, into the 22nd century. It's not a system that's fit for the 21st uh, either. And a fundamental restructuring needs to be had now the question of greed or gratitude is an interesting one. Um, there is an uh, incredible, incredible human being, Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, God rest his soul, who is kind of giving the argument around, are we made for goodness or are we made for greed? Mm. Actually, like, where is where's that balance? Are we inherently selfish? Do we believe in kind of the Dawkins theory of the selfish gene? Mm -hmm. Or do we kind of go towards actually human beings have this capability for goodness, for conviviality for community building um i won't go into the science of it but you can have your perspective of course <laughs> of which part of human society we should be building around should we be building around greed or goodness should we be building around competition or collaboration uh i would contend that we'd be far better uh building off of uh, conviviality and community than focusing on the greed aspect but it's also a really important point that you make around where, where, where are we content, actually? Uh, where is it that we feel we're living a, a good enough life? Mm. And is it enough to live good enough or do we have to live uh, kind of exceptionally all the time? Um, I think it's an ethical question. It's a philosophical question. Mm -hmm. I think that question really ties around also happiness as well and where are humans most happy or not happy. Um, there's a lot of studies done on at a certain point of material satisfaction, humans don't become happier once they have more and more and more. Sure. Um, and where is that kind of fine balance between where we're able to provide safe li living conditions for everyone, uh, where, alhamdulillah, we do have the blessing in Bahrain of we're not going hungry, uh, we do have our water, electricity, and what does it actually mean in a system that's able to be distributed equally to everyone on the planet mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't damage mm -hmm. kind of the planet. And I don't think a greed-based system enables us to get to that point. Here's, here's first of all, you're one of my favorite guests. Let me put that out there right now. Oh, thank you very because much. Because it's very rare that I can, I can have a, an actual interesting discussion with someone about topics that, that range from such a large scope, honestly. It's, and I, it's and a I have pleasure. to say, it's, it's uh, rare for me to discuss uh, these topics with a shareholder capitalism. <laughs> <lead. laughs> it's, it's, it's a reminder again of like, What's oh, your actually, mission? La, 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 la. <laughs> Sometimes I'm in my bubbles, my friend. I'm, I'm either in like the stakeholder capitalism groups or the climate people or the post-growth people. So it's nice, as, nice again to, to engage in this kind of to conversation. See, to see if Milton like Friedman kind of had. <laughs> it's, I have to, it's been 
it's been quite a few years since I've seen someone brave enough to say I'm a Milton Friedman guy. Yeah, I, I respect it. In, I, in it's a shame. Sense, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but, but I, it's nice to, <laughs> to see it. I appreciate it. Listen, you're, you're, you're really one of my favorite guests we've ever had on. Um, and that just from the level of discussions that we're able to have. I, I, again, I think for a lot of the approaches, we just have different approach of the solution. Yeah. I, I believe in, in a competition above all. Mm. You know, um, Theodore, Mar uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, always preached competition, competition. And I think that's that's the, the best way of systems to work. And I agree with you that there are we live in a society of unlimited wants and finite resources. So the question is, how do we how do we then move to a a, a mechanism or modality where you can use past existing goods or innovate on existing or new technologies yep. in order to satisfy. And whether that be uh, uh, moving from silicon-based uh, technology to biological-based technologies yep. as a solution to it, um, w whether something or whether it's a population issue, which it is, because you know you can only have an increase of your GDP as population increases. Right, the moment you you have a decline of a population in a country, it's very very difficult to keep your GDP increasing because the level of productivity that you can con contribute to a to a global scale is is yeah. is finite, right? And 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 more importantly than all of that, retirement funds work on the current labor. You're working for the retirement fund mm. is being spent on people who are currently retired. Yeah. So you need to have the next generation to be either wealthier or gr or larger than your generation in order to fund your retirement. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's how it is, right? And I think that's that's a lot of the key aspects that we don't really talk about. Um, Thomas Wall again, he brought this up. He said, look, if you look at the poorest of the poor in America, nine out of 10 over the next, over the last 10 years have increased their living standard. The system is working. People often talk about Reagan's trickle-down economy and stuff like that, and it has its faults. It really does, but it's got a few faults. It's still move. It's still moving. It's still managing. Capitalism is still working. The poorest of the poor are still moving up. It's hard to make an argument that capitalism is working when the very survival of our species and human civilization is at risk because of that very system. I think on on one hand, and you say. One point you, you mentioned, I just want to kind of mm. pull on that thread because you're saying kind of in this current system, that's how it works. And it's true. That's how it works. But it's also should it work that way? And should we look to completely reimagine that system? Sure. So on GDP, for me, it's I think there's a far more fundamental question of should we be moving from that metric mm. uh, in the first place? Is that metric around GDP? organizing societies around economic growth as the de facto goal helpful for us or not? And I would kind of contend with actually we should be moving away from a GDP-based system. Because even if we think of the concept of GDP, which was a temporary wartime measure, uh, which the very creators of GDP said it should not be actually used for the purpose of designing society beyond war, mm. uh, that actually it's not something that is to be uh, serving human community well-being that businesses shouldn't be, be designed around. Creators of GDP were very clear around where it should be used and where it shouldn't. Mm. And the way that we're using it now, and we kind of think around, okay, 2% GDP growth per year globally, and we kind of, you know, you know exponentials, uh, we kind of exponentially cross that over 
over 100 years, you're getting to a point of an economy where there's not enough resources, not enough materials, not enough minerals, not enough uh, mines, uh, not enough labor that's ever able to uh, really hold that. And even if you look at one specific industry, you're talking about real estate, uh, you know, real estate where it's not designed around people actually being able to live in communities affordably, but real estate where it's just simply as an investment year on year as a, as a, mode, of, um, as a mode of capital accumulation. Eventually, you're going to get generations not able to afford real estate. It's not a model that you can kind of extrapolate that across many generations is going to be suitable for uh, and be going to be fit for purpose. Um, I think a lot of the ideas that maybe could have had a place in the 19th and 20th century, but I do have a belief we need to have 21st century economics. Uh, we can't build our society based on a society that now is living in a far more systemic uh, world, uh, a far more interconnected world, um, a world with the type of technologies that we have, the type of world where we have different poly crises, where it's not just one crisis in some place in the world that's uh, isolated, but it's multiple and it's overlapping. We do need a different types of economics, and I think it's an economics that is definitely beyond GDP. Um, it's an economics that starts to look at where we also need a particular degrowth in society, um, where, but what I mean by degrowth, it's a planned reduction of the economy, and by that I don't mean a recession, uh, which is unplanned and destructive, and uh -huh. which what capitalism often leads to, yeah. which is recessions. Um, but it's actually having a planned downscaled economy in the industries and sectors that we know are no longer helpful for us, um, which is things around uh, military emissions, which is around uh, fast fashion in some cases, which is around uh, destructive agricultural practices, uh, which is around practices and laws and systems and mechanisms like the way that real estate is designed, which we simply cannot keep uh, uh, sustaining generation upon generation and where we're organizing around promoting the growth of sectors and industries that we know are beneficial for humanity, like healthcare, education, and other ways. And I think doing that in a way where we also take away the growth imperative, um, I think is important because often growth can be helpful in some cases, but I think growth as this be end and end all as like de facto goal um, doesn't lead us to society that really is fit for the future. I, here, there's again, we, we will we will butt heads on this because I, I believe inherently it is in our nature, it is to grow, right? And I think to to counter that and to say, hey, you know what, we should be satisfied in the level of, of 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 living standards that we currently have or whatever, isn't one feasible and and be in isn't on our nature. You know, when when you were talking about this, the thought came into my mind. I recently read about a a stabbing in Japan. No, sorry, in, in France, and it was Japanese tourists that were being stabbed and robbed. And when asked the robbers, why? They said, why do they get to have nice watches? Why do they get to have nice handbags? Hmm. It is in our very essence. It is in our soul that we want. We want. It's deep, it's in our soul. <laughs> it, is, it is. It is. It is in our DNA. We want. And there's nothing wrong with wanting. I fall all for it. And if we can build mechanisms and systems that help to, to, to allow that growth and allow that expansionability without having to, to be like, hey, you know what, we're, we're capped on our resources, mm. then all the Ford. And you know what, in a free market, it will happen. <laughs> it's again and again, we will see it. 
And I, I, I look at it from a global perspective when we are in a time when there's least amount of wars ever, ever. We, we live in a world where we are living in the best human condition that has ever occurred throughout history. Yeah. More often than not, we look back and we go, oh, it's doom and gloomy. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we're doing pretty fucking well. <laughs> we're at least, I mean, now with Russia and, 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 and Ukraine, with, with the US, we're kind of worried about Cold War again. A little bit. Yeah. It's kind of bubbling on the surface, right? But I think that's, that comes back to the, to, to the original thing is that there, there wasn't enough merchants and connections of, of trade happening within those collective because as long as it's more cost effective to be peaceful mm. than in be at war, we will always be peaceful. That's it, it, it. If it makes more sense economically, because people always think about their dollar amount. Right. Mm. <laughs> and my problem <coughs> with the cronyism that we have now is that it's easier to be a billionaire than it's than it is to be a millionaire. Yeah. It, in, in the sense of how businesses are now structured, especially mm -hmm. in the West, it's set up to, to, to be purchased. Mm. it's not set up to be run okay right and and so uh, you'll find a lot of these smes who will tell you we're building this because we feel that it would be a great addition to amazon or it would be a great addition to apple it would be a great addition to microsoft mm. that's a problem yeah that's a problem yeah and that's and 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 capitalism as a whole it doesn't matter how communistic or or whatever system you 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 operate under it's still capitalistic in, in its decision-making, right? Capitalism still exists in communism. It's just done in the state. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I mean, yeah, you get what I mean? Yeah, no, but I mean, com I mean, often, often, if you look at uh, communism, it is still very growth centered. It's very growth focused. Like you can look at uh, Russia uh, under under the old USSR. Mm. They were as growth centric and focused as as anyone. But uh, very mismanaged. No, but of course, very mismanaged, but it's Part of it is that it's it's the growth imperative that was still whether it's under capitalism or communism when that's there when it's growth at all costs when it's growth at the cost of labor rights when it's growth at the cost of the environment when it's growth at the cost of actually the well-being of society as a whole that is a problem um and you know i think in the point of uh what was i going to say Oh God, I've blanked. <laughs> Don't uh, look at me. I didn't want it in your mind. Lala, there was a point that you're, uh, there was a point you were mentioning. A communism, capitalism, expansion, expansion of, of people's wants and needs, uh, being Sorry, stabbed. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, I was gonna say, and around, I think the wants and needs. It's an interesting question, and you're saying it so deep in people's soul. Uh, I think let's talk about the soul. Sure. And for a moment, um, and I think part of that is also. Is that really in our DNA? I think is so. it? And if it is in our DNA, um, and you can look at spiritual theory around, we all have our light and our shadow. Mm. We all have our darkness as well within us. And what is what is society that brings out more of our goodness than than others? And it is true that in the form of society that we have, uh, the type of hyper consumerist society that we have, the type of marketing that we have, when you're going on Instagram and social media there is a very particular view of this is what you should be valuing in life. This is what is important. This is where your worth as a human being is inherently tied to, in watches and other things like that. For me, that's something that, that is, yes, maybe a seed within us, but is certainly being watered and overwatered. Mm -hmm. uh, that is being 
people are being incentivized and and they're kind of internalizing that type of this is what matters in society. You can look at equally other societies that don't do that, different communities where they have a different set of values and value set where owning the watch isn't the most important thing, but mm-hmm. being a good friend is the most important thing. Uh, and then you have a very different type of community and society. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you think men buy a Porsche car or a nice watch because they like the item? You tell me, do you have a Porsche car? No. I fundamentally believe we purchase it in order to attract mates. I think that is at the core, at the core of, is, of, the, of the issue, right? Luxury goods is to signal to potential mates, hey, you know what, procreate with me because your chance of your child, of our child, of your, of, of your procreate, your, your, your child having a better life. Yeah. And I think there is a, a large corn of truth that. to that. Of course, now things have changed slightly. Um, women obviously have their own income sources and so are more able to be independent. But there are there the old adage of the gold digger exists but, for a reason. But do you not think that is then also still exploitative? That that's something in which as hyper capitalism has to left who? it. To the men or to the women? Both. Both. <laughs> no, both. I think but they know what they're getting into. But it's but it's but it's exploitation on both forms. It's the it's the oppression of someone feeling that that is what I need to feel worthy. That is what I need to attract someone. And that to, I think, be in that type of mindset, to be in that space of that's the outlook and the worldview that you have, to me is a very sad one. Mm. Actually, it's something which fundamentally at your core is, is, an oppressive, is, is an oppressive worldview that's been kind of imposed on you and that you've internalized. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I think, for me, I think can really lead to a deeper and long-lasting happiness. Because I, I it, it is depending on externalities. On the other side, it's companies taking advantage sure. of this this kind of gene that you you kind of may say selfish gene, us, yeah, um, in a way which is extremely harmful. And there's other things where I think regulation is a good thing mm-hmm. as well around advertising, around what we actually are pushing. But it's a larger form of internalized capitalism for me around our inherent self worth being tied to our consumption. Where actually, when we look at what what are the roots of real human happiness. When you look at uh, all the psychological studies that are done, humans are content at a certain point. And once you start to build, build that wealth uh, beyond that, it doesn't lead to, to more happiness, so to speak. I, here, here's, here's where we're, I'll push back on, with you yeah. on a little bit on this. First, I feel like we've, we've been going back and forth. <laughs> On the same thing, it's like it's It's like the same. It's like no matter what the topic, Yanni. It's amazing. I love it, Habibi. I love it. You have no idea how happy I am that I have this opportunity. Um, Again, where 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 you just brought up the 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 worldview about being sad and and oppressive on that sense. I I would say man needs purpose, and it doesn't do good for a population of a lot of young men who don't have a job. I yeah. warn you right now, that yeah. breeds instability and that breeds war. It breeds eternal yeah. civil war. Of course you need a job. Yeah. So, so it, is, it is the more human beings are able to confide themselves into an activity, the more you can, you can give yourself an identity. If you're a watchmaker, I'm a watchmaker. Yeah. If you're whatever, a race driver, I'm a race driver. Yeah. That gives purpose, that gives, that gives fulfillment. Yeah. The, the, as as um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very peak is what? Self-fulfillment, right? 
And so the, the, the very best of what you can be, the very best of who you can be is by being the best at your job. And that's, that's where I, that's what I truly believe in, in the end of the day is that if you can focus all your energy into doing one thing, yeah. And that's why Japan, for example, rewards that culture. No matter if you're profitable or not, if you are the best toy maker, yeah. that's respectable from society. Yeah. If you're the best cleaner, that's respectable Absolutely. from society. And there's truth to that. But that's a very different thing than being the best at your craft and profession and art. One would than... say that's almost greedy. <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't I mean there's but there's a well but it's a good point because there's a difference between it's that and the pursuit of excellence the pursuit of who you are as a human being and your deepest potential and expressing that uh, in a form that is not greedy where you can be the watchmaker and create beautiful beautiful watches there's nothing wrong with that uh, but then if you're taking the next step of watchmaking with minerals that are oppressing people that are tied to the destruction of the environment that is built off slave trade and labor, there's a very big difference <laughs> between those two things. You're putting one, a lot of intention behind that guy. <laughs> but one, one can be a watchmaker uh -huh. um, without being uh, imposing the oppression of time mm -hmm. uh, across everyone, so to speak. I think there's a difference between that uh, and also, what I'll also say, uh, I'll push back against Maslow as well, um, because Maslow was also known to have appropriated actually a larger indigenous worldview that Maslow built his theory on. Mm -hmm. And actually what is often misappropriated as self-actualization, the self really in its original form was a larger sense of self. Okay. It was a self that was tied to community of your wider community and of the natural world. Uh, Maslow took that and individualized it. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, the original theory was far based on a wider sense of I am because you are. Uh, I cannot exist unless you exist. My happiness uh, is I can only go so far unless also I'm in a community and an external environment that is allowing that, uh, that thriving. Here, here, I mean... I when whenever you say this, the the old the old adage pops in my head yeah. is that the road to hell is paved on good intentions, right? Mm. And and so I believe it is above me to decide what is good and what is bad. I operate by the law, yeah. And I I try to do whatever I believe is the best that I can do, right? Yeah. And if it turns out to be good, great. And if it turns out to be bad, well, sucks. Mm -hmm. That is what it is. You know, I don't get to I don't get to have a say on how it's interpreted yeah. in the future, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. That's that's like one venue of it. And the other venue, what I dislike about that idea of community is that we've gone through it already. We've had it for the past 2,000 years. Yes. Right? It's only the last, since the 1884 Industrial Revolution, that, that individuality even appear. Prior to that, your last name was tied to your profession. Mm. That's why you have a lot of people who, who have a last name like Steinbauer or something yeah. like that. Because that's what they did. And yes. if you were born of the family of, 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 of Einschmidt, like metal workers, mm. you were going to be a metal worker. Mm. There was no other opportunities in life at that point. Yeah. And when you go back to, to, to the feudal states mm. of, of how Europe was set up, you wouldn't even be able to go from one village onto another village mm. without having the paperwork necessary from your governor or your mayor from mm. that town. 
It was incredibly oppressive. <laughs> and there was no capitalism there because you were a product of the state. Yep. You were owned and you were either a serf or you were a peasant. Which are the roots of uh, capitalism when it also came to enclosures. No, the, I don't uh, think that's the root. It, it, capitalism freed it, freed us from that menu. I'm not, I, I wouldn't say it freed us per se. I mean, it also goes into, because it's also the, Danny, the roots. can I have my coffee? Go ahead, sorry. It's also the roots of, of growth. It's the roots of enclosure. It's the roots of extractivism that then carried over into a capitalist form of, of organizing society. Um, so I think there are, I mean, there are roots uh, to it where the imperative of growth then so. comes from and then how growth is imposed uh, on the basis of you know, corrupt practices. Do you not feel that capitalism focuses on the individuality? I think that's its problem. I think that's its beauty. Yeah. That's <laughs> that should be like the, the, the essence of this conversation. This is where we sit down and we disagree. I, this is honestly, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've never had this much fun in months and months and months. Habibi, I, I can't tell you how happy I am. I'm glad, but I also trust that the seed of doubt has been planted within you. No. Uh, <laughs> slowly as you're sipping that coffee, it'll be watered. Um, no, I, I mean, I do think, Yanni, even on a longer term, uh, community is what will get us through. I believe um, it's, it's individualities, abilities that will be able to shape our world. And I don't think there's any such thing as a real individual in that sense. Mm -hmm. And we don't live alone in our and our apartments uh, devoid of anything of mm -hmm. anything else. The chair that you're sitting on mm -hmm. is both a human and more than human construct and it's materials that are, you know, put, people have put a lot of care into creating this chair sure. to deliver the electricity that's coming in, that's powering these lights. Absolutely. The, the energy that's coming through from the air conditioning. Absolutely. The workers that have, uh, with their heart and their effort and their labor built this this building that we're in. Absolutely. We can say individual, but actually we live in nothing but uh, a community life. And it was paid all to them individually, which is also beautiful to it. But paid into individually how? Well, they got everyone who you purchase a chair from or the building or the table or the electricity, every worker gets that paycheck slip, right? So your direct contribution yeah. goes directly to them, right? There's, a, there, yeah. you can't, uh, there's that saying, right? You can't move water in a cup without leaking it. Oh, sorry, you can't move uh, uh, water from one bucket to another without having some spillover or leakage, right? Thank and you. so that's, that's that. That's, that's normal. But then who owns the bucket? You invent the bucket, you get to yeah. own the bucket. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's, I mean, for me, that's, I think, where my worldview kind of comes in. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it informs economics, it informs how we operate as organizations, it's uh, what we kind of work towards. And it's one in which uh, I, yeah, you know, you're saying like it's deep in our soul. And I think there's something around the human spirit that when it's connected to community, it's, uh, um, you know, our Islamic values, our practices are all around the community. And there's a reason for that. Sure. Uh, there's a reason why we are we're organized in such a way. It's the reason why Adina is organized around such a, such a concept. And I think it's one in which um, even for our own spiritual liberation, our spiritual life, it's one that is important. Uh, but also I think it's just more, if 
I, I'm someone who thinks in systems. Uh, I, you can't think in a system if you just think as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, you think that everything is interconnected. And, mm -hmm. You know, you, you mentioned kind of even earlier before around, uh, you know, kind of look at nature wants to grow. You're sort of saying that. And actually, nature also has its limits uh, of growth, depending on where it is. Uh, if uh, a tree wanted to uh, be the most efficient at photosynthesis, its leaves would be black. Uh, but it's not black because actually what's important is not the maximization of that one individual leaf, but it's how it operates in the balance across its whole entire ecosystem, uh, what serves itself, but also it can only really serve itself if it starts to give back to the mycorrhizal fungal, fungal roots where it's able to serve the insects that are also benefiting from it, sure. uh, where it's nourishing that ecosystem. And on, if trees... On a longer, on a longer term, it's... You know, you're saying that's how communities, uh, that's how human society was organized around, and there is a reason for that because the community model is usually a sustainable model in the long run. And if trees weren't competitive, they wouldn't be trying to grow the at the highest peak, and they would rather spread each other out equally in order to maximize the gain of light. But they compete. <laughs> they they both compete and collaborate, and it's a, and it's a balance. And as a forest, as an ecosystem, they Ooh. collaborate. What, one of the biggest issues what you find with, for, with, with deforestation is actually because there's too many trees in, in one. So what happens is this, right? So if you're looking at like a hillside, right? And then you have a bunch of trees on the hillside. Because of the soil degradation from the tree roots, when as rain increases, you end up with a landslide mm. that occurs because of just too many tightly packed trees. In, in in that routine area, right? And so that's the argument of deforestation. Deforestation is to help spread out that those tree sets. I would say the term isn't deforestation because that's I, that's a very that's a very specific practice. I'll around... concede on the term. No, no, <laughs> uh, no, no. So, so what I'll say there's a difference between what you sort of what you mentioned around like deforestation, uh, which is you're going there, you're logging, you're intentionally kind of raising. Uh, raising and cutting down uh, entire forests for the purposes of yeah, using for logging, sure. etc. And then what you kind of mentioned is an example of where you need forest management. And where I, earlier I said actually natural ecosystems are sometimes better off when humans, and particularly uh, traditionally it's been indigenous communities mm. that have come in and have ethically and sustainably looked at forest management that are saying actually yes uh, this is why you need there's a there's a, a profession called uh, tree surgeons mm -hmm. where they go in and they actually look at an ecosystem and say actually yes maybe there is going to be uh, I'm with kind you. of landslide and all of that and that's not from a mode of extraction that's a mode of ensuring the ecosystem is actually thriving um, and it's a very very big difference between those two kind of practices habibi yeah. you won't like i would say about 80 percent to 70 percent of what we say we we are both on the same yeah. agreement it's just the 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 it's the milton freedom it's thing. Yeah. just it's just how <laughs> how to execute it like like with with the deforestation i i'm with you 100 i believe it's a great business model to cut trees and to regrow them i think it's a fantastic business model Right, I, I I think you're 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 providing a natural habitat for potential animals, and at the same time you're you're being profitable while being able to uh, to to operate in in a sustainable fashion. I I believe from a from a pure 
capitalistic point of view, it's a great mechanism. But for, for that to, to occur, negative externalities need to be punished. Yeah. And, and how that is punished, whether you say from climate change in that you fund the technology that is carbon capturing. Mm. But if you do that, businesses then complain and say, hey, you know what? Our tax dollars are being spent on potential products that we don't really want because we could be designing these products. We could be fulfilling that item, but you're not giving us the chance to do so. Mm. There's that kind of counter narrative, right? Mm. I mean, the U.S. tried it with, um, with carbon co coins, right? Mm -hmm. Where, where they would have a carbon tax and it would every company if if you cut commission you get that coin which mm. you can then leverage against your tax code mm. right and what happened was that you'd have like these these very renewable companies like Tesla's for example would sell these coins to other more polluters <laughs> mm. so it, it I, I don't know if there's a simple solution on it other than bringing down the hammer and sickle maybe. Yeah. But I was going to say, um, I mean, even even those kinds of mechanisms and I mean, the carbon markets are very underdeveloped at the moment. Um, it is still also very much race to the bottom. It is very much greenwashing uh, as they're as they are now, um, because it's still in this mode of towards increasing economic growth. It's actually not there to serve, I think, the core purpose of what they were designed to do which is help a just transition to uh, uh, renewable energy, to uh, public infrastructure that is in, in sync with the environment uh, and for a larger kind of sustainable well-being commons. Like it's, these are kind of individual tools that are actually not serving any of those purposes. And actually, it's the opposite. It's because they're being implemented often by companies that are profit-centric, uh, where they have often failed. I, I think there's... I think where the where the root of the problem lies is that there is a or a misalignment of goals between executives or or, or board or CEO or whatever yeah. level, and at the end of the day, uh, the foot soldiers. Mm -hmm. And the misalignment is that you know a CEO, a good board sets plans for about twenty five years, ten to twenty five years. If you're a good board, if you're a bad board, you do five years because <laughs> there's issues if you're doing it that mechanism. Um, but what happens is that you have a board that has an intention or, or value or aim or objective for, for 25 years. You have then the, 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 the general managers and the supervisors having to show quarterly growth because their yeah. ability to get promoted, to move up in that hierarchy yeah. is, is set in a very specific time frame, right? Exactly. It, it's not like we're saying to that person, hey, listen, you're going to be stuck in this position for five years. And if yeah. you do good in these five years, we're, we're going to put you into vice president position, yeah. right? In reality, you've got every year, you have to show what you've done. Yep. And so you end up with this, with this weird clash where a lot of the times decisions are done for the short-term gain exactly. rather than the long-term gain. Yeah. But that's because there's a misalignment. Absolutely. I, yeah. I don't yeah, believe it's agree. nefarious in any sense. Yeah. Or that capitalism is the, at fault at this. This is <laughs> humans Cap being bad. <laughs> I mean, it's also the incentives the, to be successful under the system of capitalism as well. I mean, it's partly, it's partly connected to that. Um, but I agree, it is a misalignment of, uh, um, I think, of objectives. And it's a misalignment when it comes to, even when you look then at the wider sphere of between government and what government feels would be serving public infrastructure and services, whether healthcare, education, others, and there's even more misalignment. Um, and then you go to the outer layer of ecologically, 
sure. um, as well and just the biosphere and the biophysical reality that we live in. And then there's even more misalignment when it comes to that. Well, this, I mean, especially when we talk about the food industry, right? There is so much cronyism going on, hmm. you know, that you're not allowed to, f to film slaughterhouses, for example. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That, that uh, you, can, you can be sued if you take pictures of what they're feeding the animals. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. And I, th I think that's the that's where 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 real real government oversight needs to step in. And it has to you have to push the market. You have to you have to sh you have to clean up a lot of this mess so that it is profitable for for smaller farming communities to exist. Yeah. Right. But yeah. the, the cronyism has, has reached to such a far degree that if farmers use Okay, so this is a very specific use case. Mm. Uh, in the U.S., um, uh, seeds are bioengineered, yeah. and they're set up as a yearly growth cycle, yeah. meaning that if you get caught planting last year's seeds in your yeah. farm, you can be sued up the wazoo. Yeah. And that needs to, to, to be addressed yeah. majorly. Yeah. And that, that's, that's where the failure of, of cronyism happened, yeah. right? And, and it's a failure around, I think, also how we think of IP, uh, especially when it comes to natural, I think, natural assets. So sure. Speak. I mean, even that example of the seed, you know, there's examples in, in India of a, uh, a large company patenting uh, an indigenous seed um, and in the process of patenting it and then by engineering it, uh, didn't allow the farmers who've been planting this particular seed uh, for centuries and centuries to mm. use it again. So when a community then comes and plants it, uh, something they've planted for uh, generations in their family, they're then uh, getting cease and desist letters. Uh, Coronianism, that's all and it is. And the fact that that is allowed, the fact that that kind of extractism is something that is celebrated as an investment and technology and innovation is, yeah, it's a problem. And it's a problem that pervades itself across not just the food system, but across many, many others as well. Well, I mean, if we look at it from a larger perspective again, or a macro perspective, the stuff that you find in the, in the supermarket, none of it is, is nature's intent, mm. right? I mean, Dan, can you look up what the picture is for the original watermelon? Oh, look at the uh, banana. Banana. The banana is interesting. Uh, watermelon, avocados. Yeah. All of these, that's, that, yeah, yeah. none of that was, was even mangoes. Yeah. Original watermelon. Oh, those are just <laughs> original watermelon recipes that look, yeah. uh, they look really, uh, really delicious. Yeah, that's how the original watermelon looked like. Right there on the left, Danny. You the see ancient it? origins of watermelon. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't anywhere near as sweet as it is today. It's all changed. And there's a difference between Kettle as well, by the way. We've, yeah. we've, and chickens, we've bred them for, for thousands of years. And there's a difference between, you know, when it comes to, to fruits and vegetables kind of breeding, and there's a difference between when you have that type of cronism where you're starting to patent and actually where you're stopping communities from planting particular seeds and crops because you then end up with a food system that is completely uh, overtaken by private capture. Um, and food, as what I believe is should be a right, uh, is no longer something that can be really enshrined and, and accessible to communities. It's it's a very difficult process on on how it's it's managed. 
I don't believe you should be able to be at a restaurant and order a steak for 10 BD. Mm. I don't think that that's that, that should not be possible. Mm. I, uh, you know, just from the overhead of what it would cost the restaurant yeah. to how much that cow actually is worth, that doesn't feasibly make sense to me in, yeah. in my head. Most of the animals we eat is actually uh, uh, sick, yeah. uh, feeding cattle grain. Yeah. It makes them diabetic. Yeah. It puts fat storages. So you're eating a sick animal yeah. and, and we're poisoning ourselves in that aspect. And that's, again, that's, that's, that's pure cronyism. And, and the, the same occurred with, with you know, back, I, don't, I mean, me and you lived in through this cycle of, 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 of the war on fat. Mm-hmm and how we pushed entire society on sugar. Yeah. Yet somehow, if that was true, why do we have an epidemic of obesity, yeah. right? And, and this, this, this comes back to the case. And on the larger scale, now see, this is, this is where the conspiracy part of me comes out. Oh, now this, I look oh, at that climate all, all, change. All of this wasn't the conspiracy part. No, now we're getting to the now conspiracy, getting to the conspiracy now. All right. the, the aspect of, of when you told me 99% of scientists believe uh, that climate change is man-caused, and then I look at uh, sugar or fats, then I look at what we've been told. <laughs> with oh, the nutrition, I mean, the nutrition industry, I think, is something else completely. I mean, the nutrition industry... And I'm not a nutritionist. I mean, I've sat, uh, I mean, many talks have attended as well by Nutrition Bahrain. We'll kind of just go around. This is where science and corporate capture, I think, comes in. Because you can look at any fact that's maybe nutrition-y, you can see and search on the internet. Then you'll find another study that'll confirm and tell you the complete opposite. Sure. And it's a very particular thing in that industry where when you start to go to the roots of any study and find, oh, but it's actually funded by this company and that company, it's more prevalent, I think, almost in the, in the dietary and food and nutrition sector than any, than any other. The, the one, like even the less than 1% of studies in the climate world that have a cast doubt on climate change are funded by the fossil fuel industry. No, yeah. come on. Fossil fuel is the biggest... Uh, no, funders no, no. for no, uh, no, climate no, change saying, activities. No, I'm the ones, the ones that the ones that actually discount sure. are, are the ones that actually are are kind of those core funding where it's there to put sort of seeds of doubt. But that is less of an issue in the climate space where the science is far more comprehensive than I think nutrition and diet and, and food, where your the idea of you're in a post-normal science world is I think very prevalent and like the. The post-normal science concept is, you know, you're doing science in a, now in a world in an age where facts are up for debate, where it's extremely politicized, where science, academia, and corporate capture and cronism are so intertwined that it's sometimes hard to intermesh and to, to disentangle, and that you can justify almost anything uh, through a scientific study if you pay enough for it when it comes to certain industries like nutrition and others. Um, I've heard many nutritionists complain, obviously, of that fact that even when you start to study uh, that as a field, it's so complex because you're being told the truth and the opposite and the opposite and the truth, and you're not quite sure what's real and what's not real. Sure. Um, and it's an extremely murky field to, well, to kind of navigate but it's not let's not and, let's not kid ourselves it's it's not just nutritionists bp when they had that oil spill yeah the engineers told them you cannot put water there it will yeah. it will cause a rupture yeah. and and th they themselves said no 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 yeah. just make it happen 
So it, it's it's not that that the problem I think at a larger scope is that we don't believe in our institutions anymore yeah. because they have failed miserably, <laughs> and that you you kind of get pushed on the offset of being oh you're a science denier when you're like no I just don't trust you. I just, I just don't, don't trust the it. institution anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the scary part, right? Yeah. Where where you're kind of stuck in a situation where you're reading nature or American scientific and you go, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And you look at who are who are the people who are the researchers, who are their funders, where is those roots? Um and yeah, it's a, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to by the, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but uh when researchers first went to study uh penguins, they wrote it in ancient Greek. They sorry what? They wrote it in ancient Greek. Okay. Because I I don't know how I feel about that, but um they wrote it in ancient Greek because they didn't want the public to be to to be shocked on how cruel penguins are. Penguin society. They how are, they are. horrible. Hmm. They are horrible. <laughs> From necrophilia everything. They mm -hmm. are like terrible animals. But uh, yeah, so so yeah. they so they wrote their research papers in ancient Greek for only the scientific community. Can you look it up, Dan? You gave I me that look of doubt. I'll show it to you. No, no, I was <laughs> I was just thinking. I wonder what the penguins think of us. I don't think they, they're capable of that level of self awareness. I wonder what the penguins think of us. Penguin Club. Yeah, that's another problem. You've heard of that, didn't you? No, I haven't. Oh, that was like a that was like a pedophile ring. <laughs> You somehow come back to this in your podcast quite... Uh, oh, we do, uh, we so. do. But was this in Greek? No, it's not in Greek. No, the, the, they wrote it. They wrote their, their, their annotations in Greek. Oh, interesting. Mm. But yeah, I think it's also, again, it's still our human interpretation of their laws and their moral code and their ethics and... I don't think they have those things. Moral code and ethics. Well, no, I said it's our Sure, sure, sure. I'm it's like yeah, our yeah, imposition. Yeah, yeah. I uh, agree with on that. Them on, on them and not taking species for their own particular unique communities and how they operate and what their rules are. And, and, and some were able to figure that out behaviorally and some were still figuring out what yeah, the systems are. And what do you think of people like Alex Jones? Alex Jones, mm. the... Can you type in climate uh, climate change, Alex Jones? Alex. He has he has like he's he built a whole. <laughs> Does he want to show up in Google? Out of Google? Go to images, please. Oh, that Alex Jones. <laughs> that Alex Jones, the, yeah. the guy who went broke now because he was sued by the Sandy Hook. Uh, I don't know if he's broke. I think... Oh, uh, no, he was... Uh, what, I forgot he, what it was. Like He transferred his company's assets to to another entity so he can claim bankruptcy. So he wouldn't have to... Yeah, be, but, but be that's, the same, that's the same guy. Yes, that's the, the same guy. They're, they're trying to sue him for $3.2 now. That's, that's another issue that needs to, needs to be rectified. I rectified in what sense? I mean, that's an astronomical amount. That's the that's the GDP size of yeah. France. How can you have a lawsuit for defamation of three point two trillion? I mean, how can you have a? You but it's the same guy who um, basically terrorized the Sandy Hook family victims. That's the guy. 
Yes, I don't yeah. know if, if I mean I don't think he. That's why he was. Yes, yes, yes. But let's. Not gonna take so much. No, of no, 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 no. You labeled I him mean, very specifically right there, and you know exactly I mean, what you did. He I mean, he he claimed Alex damage to society. He claimed uh, what he named one person. I think more from terrifying the than Trump. I don't think he's more terrifying. Than no, Trump. no, that's what he's. That's what it says down on the down on the left. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I would uh, take his climate change theories you? seriously, but I haven't heard his views on climate change. <laughs> but I can only assume, my friend, that there is a very specific intersection. Yeah. Of, yeah. Like. I mean, I. I, I yeah. I, I would. Uh, I'll send you some stuff of his over. <laughs> I'm not gonna promise to watch any of that, my friend. Oh come on! Gonna... <laughs> Don't be close-minded. What is this? You should be open. What There's... happened to 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 um? You know, there's some things it's like you're aware of, but mm -hmm. also it's, I think you also need to be careful about what you kind of take in. Oh. Uh, I think you can, you can be open enough to understand and have empathy and to understand a different point of view. Mm -hmm. But I think as soon as it starts to go into hate speech and it goes into right wing. We're going to crash on this as well. Like all of that. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's a no, but it's a personal choice of like the type of content that you want to spend your time on. Yes, but as well. okay. Let, well, and there's a fine balance being aware and open and sure, uh, and then also just. But we have to deconstruct these parts, right? I mean, when you're talking about, first of all, hate speech isn't a thing; it doesn't exist. It's speech. It's freedom of speech. You were were an yeah. act where you then call to action. That's what's illegal. Okay. So if I, if I say, you know, fuck Dan. But it's legally. That's called, fine. But there's a legal, there's legal terms around hate speech and legal. But th that's, yeah. that's dangerous. That's yep. so, so dangerous. Yep. When, when you start having that dialogue, because what is deemable hate speech today, not necessarily is a reflectation of future. The word faggot, for example, is a cigarette in the UK. However, it is, it is a very different connotation in the US. The word cunt which is a very different connotation in the US, in the UK, means an idiot. And there's also at scale when you're anti-Semitic to... That, that's easy. That's a no. whole different thing again. But that's the same. But Alex Jones is the same guy as well. I don't think he's anti-Semitic. Uh, he might be. I don't know. Can you please... Danny, uh, look it up. Researcher. Is, is Danny... Uh, uh, Alex Jones anti-Semitic? We're going to be put on a watch list. That's Kanye West. Can you scroll down? Ah, uh, there you go. <laughs> the first link, can you believe it immediately? But a website called Spectre.org. No, 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 I was thinking if it's the same, if it's the same guy. Indeed it is. I mean, Alex Jones, Times of Israel. No nope, comments. no, no, nothing, nothing with Alex Jones so far. <laughs> I know, literally the first ones all were. No, that was Kanye West. La la. La, tala. Which one? Alex Jones debates the Jewish questions. I mean, that doesn't make him... Uh, uh... The Infowars host and internet-fueled conspiracy theorist goes off about the Jewish mafia. Is that true or is that just tabloid.mag? I don't know. Anyway, I mean, 
listen, you're you're far more knowledgeable on, on Alex Jones, Jones in that world than I am. I'm I love and that dude. I leave it to you. No comment <laughs> on in my world, my friend. I'm. Yeah. I mean, I I I, I mean, we we went far off track here. Do you want to be the Alex Jones of Bahrain? Is absolutely. Ooh. Absolutely. Ooh, wow. Oh, wow. I, I think uh, absolutely. If I if I could, do you have the GDP of China to uh, to spend on the incoming lawsuits? <laughs> I think at that point I'll have to move and change names. I'll have to put on a mustache or maybe shave my bearded mustache. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't. I like Hagiga. I don't know what what how the world will look like in that sense. There is interesting shit that happens. There's crazy stuff that happens. I don't know where the line to that is or isn't and how mm. how it has to be portrayed because i mean in in it's it's dangerous when when you look at like the new york times or the the guardian um who owns amazon owns which now which newspaper washington post and they all have a collective narrative once reporting becomes like a coversion mm. where they're like, hey, you know, well, this is the dialogue we're pushing. Mm. That's what becomes really, really dangerous. Yeah, it does. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. I mean, the stuff like, like, for example, you, you know, like uh, uh, the White House told Twitter to ban to ban doctors that were worried about giving the, the COVID vaccine. Okay. I don't exactly right and that was underreported because of specific reasons uh the eu <coughs> the eu just questioned Pfizer for, for uh, on allegations mm. uh it was just recently in the news and uh Pfizer came out and admitted that uh the the vaccine they knew that the vaccine didn't didn't stop infection yes but they marketed it that it would okay that was one of the key dialogues around it saying, hey, you know, even if you're not worried about getting COVID, you should get it because you're saving your, your grandparents or you're saving your parents. And that's yeah. the stuff that gets really, really like scary. What would you like content wise? What kind of exposure would you want? What 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 would be your dream? I mean, I was very happy that you said that you're thinking of doing a female centric show. Sure. Um, I think with female centric, it is also exploring gendered gender uh, I think is a border issue and I I also think that there is a need for more engagement of men I think on this topic as well that it's a show that's also able to explore uh, femininities as much as it is masculinities I think in its sense um, and I think more of that kind of space and discussion uh, yeah is welcome and I'm happy to hear that you're heading in that direction it's it's a difficult we have this discussion a lot with girls and i i go you, you can't have the good without having the bad yeah. right i mean you you can't say i want equal treatment and equal opportunity and then be surprised when you're getting grabbed by the bus be surprised when people don't want to defend you or walking on the street i mean i'm I speaking to my friends in, in the uk in london and uh, I was talking to her about it, and she was telling me at the moment she doesn't go outside her house to walk her dog yeah. um, at night. You know, she, she lets her boyfriend do that. Uh, when she does walk in and off of a bus station, she, she puts her keys into her fist. So if somebody would, like, grab her or something like that, 
that she would be able to scotch him. And, Ugh. you know, you, you go to a club and you get called bitch, you get called this, you get called that. This is not part of our society. I, uh, yani, if, if somebody says in a club or in a bar and somebody yells like that bitch or something like that, mm. the whole place stops. Like they look, they're like, this is something big happened. Mm. But in the UK, you know, nobody even bats an eyelid. Mm. It's not a big thing. And, and you know, here, if, if you touch a girl and she makes a scene, the pace like stops. Of course. But in, in as it should be. At, at, listen, I'm not arguing against it. I'm yeah. saying in the UK, no one really cares. No one cares. You get filled up in, in buses. You get filled up in, in clubs. And that's that's the price you pay. You know, you, you can't... the price you pay for what? I think if, if, if you... In, I, think it's, I think it's safe to say that here in Bahrain or the GCC, we do hold women almost like a princess. Okay. In the sense that we, we, we see them... I don't want to say them as an object, but we... we we wrap them almost like in bubble. Do you not get what I'm saying? Like we're we're very like the way we treat women is in very respectful. Which, which I think is core to our principles. Also, as a as, as a nation, a, as, as a, a culture, country, as a culture in, in Islam as well. Absolutely, respect for any human being, and especially the respect and rights for for women. At the same time, I also don't think that even in the UK. That that for me isn't the price. Like you should, there isn't a trade-off, or there shouldn't be a trade-off between you are you have your rights, you're respected, your freedoms, and this is the cost of it. Also, because even when those freedoms weren't there, even when it was the suffragettes and the suffragette movement, they still didn't have those freedoms uh, either. So it's. For me, it's not. It's oh. not like one equals two. Come on, the 1940s—the way men treated women was very different than the 1980s or even now the the 2000s. I mean, we can we can be very honest on this when we talk about the West. Look at—you <laughs> just have to look at how old movies treat <laughs> the dialogue that was spread, and you can ask the older generation. I mean, dialogue is one thing, but then when you're talking about your 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 even your right to vote, your your right to own property your right to play sports, your right to go outside uh, without kind of permission. Uh, all of those things were not afforded. Uh, your right to work in many industries. Sure. All of that wasn't there. Like no matter how much that's, uh, it may seem in kind of dialogue, uh, I think externally, then yeah, it's, uh, it's something that wasn't a core. But, but I mean, when we're talking about the right like to vote. Even, even like it was an interesting thing with the England. Um, Danny, can you give me my ashtray and my cigarettes? Thank you. But, but even with the, I was just going to say, even in the UK, there was an interesting dialogue that happened around the, um, the women's football team. Sure. Where, you know, they won the Euros for the. So. Okay, perfect. I think it was the Euros for the first time. And there was this kind of conversation around, oh, should should the women's football team be paid mm. the same amount as the men? Then obviously, kind of the different debates around it, around but you know how much money do they bring in, uh, the sector, the industry, and of course, there's more money in the men's game than there are the women's game. And it was and where the conversation eventually went in that debate was yes, but also women were banned from playing football professionally for decades. Um, it was something which the very industry 
was outlawed and men, the men's game had far longer to build its commercialization, its industry, etc. And it doesn't mean that once that's allowed and people are now allowed to vote, to participate in industry, to uh, have their equal voice, that that should come at the cost of you not even feeling safe to go outside. But for me, it's a sign of more work needs to be done. And I've also heard my friends here say the same when they go out in Bahrain and in, in certain areas where and they're, they're cold and it's not that. Yeah. By the way, sorry to jump through. There's a law right now being put into place in yeah. Bahrain, 100 BD fine which is, for gut calling. Which is good and is the bare, 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 bare minimum of what should be in place. And for me, it's not this is the cost of your freedom, but actually you're only really in your liberty when you're safe in your country, when you're able to go out safely at any time of the day, when you don't have to worry about those types of things in the workplace and public society actually for me it shows we have a lot more work to do but here's where my where i stand against you on this uh, one i don't think men or women are are the same i think we are different biologically mentally our goals are different alignments right you can look at scandinavia that has done more than any other nation in the world in the world that have equalized it as much as possible and what have you find when you equalize things as 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 much as you can, you increase the biological differences. There are more men engineers in Scandinavia than than anywhere else, and there's more female nurses than anywhere else. And and there is a root cause to this. We cannot say you know in society, hey, you know what, we're we're we we all have the same skill sets. We all have the same everything. It's not. You you get the luck of the trade. Some people are good at music. Some people are good at math. It is what it is. <laughs> And the same yeah. is, is true with gender. I mean, there are like I'm not saying that there, that that a female can't win against a man, but I'm saying when you look at it as a whole picture on boxing, guys tend to do better. That does not me necessarily mean that there cannot be a female world champion who cannot defeat all guys, but the probability <laughs> is it stacked in your favor. But those are different. I mean, those are different sports. Um, and, and, chess and, is the um, same thing, by the way. There's different sports, but I'd also say, I mean, one for different kind of podcast completely but i think there is a illusion of what the scandinavian model is and Ooh. i don't think it's one that's really as as democratic as equal um uh, as what i think it's portrayed to be um you can speak to the many arab and ignorant communities that are there now uh, suffering from structural racism how society is designed there uh but yeah a topic for a, a different time um i'd love to have you back on dude if you want to uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i'm worried that you're like hey you know what that was too much for me <laughs> he's like i'm stepping into my alex jones phase now my friend i'm uh, i'm fully there uh, but, but um, i think like there's on that one side but for me there's a very listen there's a difference between uh you're talking around kind of sports or something where men and women are competing one another like there's something that's there uh, that's different, and there are different kinds of sports, different forms of sports, uh, to the very fundamental question of, okay, but that still doesn't mean that in a inclusive society that we can't have a, a situation where everyone, men and women are included, are safe from harassment, uh, where they're treated equally, where their rights are, in, are enshrined. Like That also has nothing to do with that kind of wider spectrum of any 
biological that that should be a standard for all human beings sure but i mean we're, we're this is this is talking about a perfect world situation i mean it, it, you you expose yourself to risk by your actions right yeah. and that both is from women and for men right if you go into a bad neighborhood with your car that's on you right if you walk at night in a bad neighborhood that's also partly on you it sucks but it's you have to have also part of responsibility on this and and you just say to that society should be respectful and should be safe i'm all for it i'm not arguing against it but you cannot like be delusional about it either but also women aren't delusional about it because you just gave the example of your friend who mm -hmm. thinks twice mm -hmm. obviously around going out um you know we know that when you know women go into an uber they text their friends and they send the notification of you can track my ride just to make sure that they're home that they're home safe that um, has to, that's like, a, that's the world that's, we live in that's unfortunately the world that we live in now and you'd hope it's the world that we work to be out of um and it's one in which inequality comes in many different forms and that's also one of them because there's this concept as well around you know time inequality because actually men therefore have far more opportunity to exercise and to move than women do just because of that kind of one thing women actually have to spend more time avoiding all these different places to think twice to do all these precautions that men also don't have to do um, and there's a cost towards that it's not an efficient model uh, as well um, if you are in a shareholder capitalism perspective actually it's far better to have a, a, a rights-based uh, model as well that really enshrines that because then people are, are more in their freedom and their liberty well here's here's here is where 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 ideology meets meets fact and right also just apologies i do have to yeah we're yeah yeah soon. sure 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 let me know you want to go now no, we can finish this point. Okay, I was, I was just going to... I have a family member who's kind of waiting. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, I was about to say, was, was when you look at, like, um, uh, League of Legends, I could be mistaken for which contest it was, but I think it was League, League of Legends. League of Legends. It's like a video game. Yeah. And uh, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are right now pushing this, this whole video game, yeah. uh, esports industry. Yeah. Long story short, um, they, they, they broke off the matches in gender, meaning okay. they had a women team and they had a males team. Yeah. There was a huge backlash on it. And their argument that they presented was saying, listen, if we mix it and, and we, we don't take consideration in the gender, there are going to be far fewer females in the competing ring yeah. because it's, it's 25 spots. Yeah. And that's just the fact of it. And that does not necessarily mean that one of those women's, women can't be the, in the champion team. Yeah. It just means that the probability of being a pure female team winning yeah. is very is, is fewer yeah. and and people were were basically coming out and calling them liars and yeah. so they did it and so out of the, the they had two leagues both with 25 25 now they have one league which is 25 yeah. and i think there are about two or three women being able to compete yeah so you've you've ruined an entire league i guess you've ruined an entire not league but you've ruined an entire opportunity for women that it would have been able to compete and that leads mm -hmm. on to the bigger picture now yeah. where you're saying okay where if if you're saying men and women should be able to compete in sports what do you do then with people who identify them as their own as a opposite of their gender do you allow boxing with with a guy who's been a guy for 25 years who's just gone through a sex reassignment <laughs> then I mean, I think I don't know. I don't know. But, but I think sports is a whole other. I mean, it's a whole other thing. Um, I mean, sports is also obviously it's connected to 
it's going to call in this conversation, but it's also very separate to of course. how women are able to participate economically in society, um, the, the rules and the laws that are ensuring that they also have equal rights to men at every single level of society, um, as well as also having the rules, the customs, the norms, the laws that ensure that you can go outside and, and for a walk without worrying for your very life is a very different conversation to should then men and women be competing? And that depends on sports as well. You know, Serena Williams, um, you know, sort of spoke to actually you can't compare men and women's tennis because it's almost two separate sports. Uh, and she talked about how, you know, if she was competing in the men's game, uh, she may not be as successful because it's just a very different kind of sport. She lost to um, a guy who was smoking and eating chicken wings. <laughs> but... I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was a big story. But it's, but it's a very different kind of sport, I think, in its essence, to compare it to when you start to look at gaming, which I find interesting because you start to look into, I'd be interested in a scientific study. I'll like present it to you. Because it's, no, no, I mean, it's, I think it's a very interesting cultural thing because I would start to look at, you know, why is that? Is that also in the roots of the, when you compare the men and the women and their experiences around gaming? Uh, have men been afforded more of the time to game in their life? Are they in family environments where the family are more considered for the guy basically gaming all day and then not allowing the female to game? I love it. Is there like a time difference uh, in inequality of where they're allowed to or not? Is it a case of also just culturally where the patriarchy is in play and I love women it. shouldn't be? But I, I start to think about like what are actually the reasons and the roots where, yes, okay, it would be important to have your platform for female gamers, so you have that. And also then understanding what are the barriers culturally, time-wise, and all of that that come into it. I don't know if like any of that is the case, of course, but I'd be very interested to see where that shows up and how that shows up because it's just a reflection of society in different forms. I love that you, you, you centered around the sociological issues involving with it rather than saying, hmm, I wonder if there's a biological difference onto it. <laughs> no, but, 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 that's, but, that's, but the thing, that's where I would start. Sure. I'd actually start with where is the... The, the, the playing field not leveled? Where is there just a vast difference in spectrum and structure of inequality that would have led to that in the first place? That's where my, my, that's mm. where my mind goes in the first place. Uh, listen, I've, I've been around a lot of guys. We're not, we're not so special. I, uh, I think we <laughs> are. I think we are. We, I, mean, like, I mean, and you, you just, for me, I think you start to, for me, first you go there. First you go to that fundamental where are there the root structures and causes of inequality? Mm -hmm. Let's start there mm -hmm. and understand that and start to build that, understand where is that historically, structurally, um, and where then do we have the pathways, the platforms to help balance and write that in different ways um, until, yeah, then you can have maybe a, uh, a question around biologically and then where you have an experiment where you have two twins as an experiment of boy boy and girl that are growing up with the same amount of gaming uh, and then see who's better at the end of it. Uh, I don't know if that kind of <laughs> study has been done, but I'd be very interested to see if that study has been done uh, and to be repeated across many different kinds of twins and genes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's where my mind goes when you start to share those kinds of stories. Mm. I, I, find that yeah. I find that absolutely fascinating, yeah. Habibi. Dude, it's been an absolute pleasure and oh, I'd love to have you, have you back on if you're up for it. It's uh, <laughs> my pleasure as well. Thank you for the invite. Come on.